Our scripture reading is from 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 31 through 50. And this is on pages 240 and 241 in the Pew Bible. And if you don't own a, own a Bible, please take one of these Pew Bibles as a gift from us. 1 Samuel 17, 31 through 50. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. For you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if, if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in, the, in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. 
When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Anthony. Well, good morning. It's a joy to worship with you all this morning and an honor to get to open God's word with you as well. Um, As Anthony mentioned, my name is Dave Huber. I serve on the pastoral staff at Church of Charlotte, which is an EFCA congregation uh, in Charlotte, North Carolina. And it's an honor to be with you all this morning for a number of different reasons. Uh, For one, uh, Bill Gorman, the campus pastor here at Brookside, is a dear friend of mine. And it's an honor to get to support him and his sabbatical uh, by helping to fill the pulpit. Now, um, I I think I serve kind of a unique role in Bill's absence here. Uh, Every pastor who's away from his congregation for any length of time wants to know that his people are well-fed. And following along with you all in the Brookside campus through the podcast, uh, it's really been awesome to hear the incredible speakers that y'all have been able to enjoy, as well as the powerful messages of God's grace and redemption and forgiveness and mercy. It's been an awesome journey, even in Bill's absence, and I think that's awesome. Uh, And yet, any pastor who is absent from his congregation for any length of time also wants to know at some point that they were missed. Um, (laughs) And if your pulpit supply is too good, you may find when you come back that people are actually a little bit disappointed. Um, And that's where I come in. I feel like I'm here... (laughs) to help lower the bar uh, and prepare for a longing for Bill's return in just a few weeks, and I'm confident that I can help him with that goal. Um, But but I'm also honored to be here this morning uh, because I love this place. Uh, Eight years ago, my wife and I moved from Chicago to Kansas City in order for me to be a part of the Fellows Program, and and I've got to tell you, it it was two of the hardest years of our lives. Uh, not, not because of Christ's community, uh, but because of me, because of my own baggage that I had to work through. Um, and Christ's community provided a safe place to be able to wrestle with my unhealthiness. You know, we knew coming in that we needed a place that where uh, healthy pastoral ministry would be modeled and taught, but we didn't know how desperately we needed it until we were actually here. And Christ's community provided that safe place to struggle and grow uh, in our marriage, in our ministry, in my own uh, personal spiritual formation. But, but more than anything else, uh, Christ's community taught me the beauty and power of the redemptive gospel of God's grace in ways that nothing else had up until that point. I, I know it sounds like I'm overstating it, but I'm not. Christ's community uh, saved us for pastoral ministry. It made a profound difference in our lives And we're forever grateful. We're grateful to the leadership here at Christ Community for all the time and effort that they invest in this program. And I want you all to hear, we're grateful to you as well for all that you invest in the pastoral fellows, whether that's financial or material or relational. Thank you. And I know that I speak on behalf of all the fellows. We had the privilege of gathering together all of the fellows for a reunion this past week. Uh, About 20 some odd of us gathered around the room. And I know if they were standing up here each one of them would say the same thing. Thank you. Thank you so much for your investment. 
Well, uh, this morning, I want to tell you a story. I I don't know about you, but I love a good story, both in the hearing and in the telling. Uh, Stories are really powerful things. They, They do more than just entertain or illustrate. Stories fuel our imagination. They, they rekindle our hope. They teach us the meaning of life. They help shape our identity in a way that nothing else really can. That's why stories have always been at the center of every society. If you want to know what a person believes or what a group of people believes, just listen to the stories that they tell, and you'll soon find out. So whenever I have the chance to preach out of anywhere in the Bible, I almost always pick a story And today, I've chosen a particular story for a particular reason. Um, No, it's not because I happen to share the name of the hero, uh, though that's kind of nice. Uh, And no, it's it's not even because I preached this a few weeks ago in my own home congregation. Uh, Okay, maybe it was a little bit of that. (laughs) Um, But more than anything else, I wanted to preach this text this morning because it's an incredibly well-known story, and unfortunately, often, an incredibly misunderstood story. And that's a powerful combination, a dangerous combination. The the story of David and Goliath has captured the imaginations of young and old down through the millennia. I don't know about you, but I can still remember in my Sunday school class as a child sitting on the rug, watching with keen interest as the drama unfolded on the black backdrop backdrop of a flannel graph board. Anybody else with me? Um, But the truth is, you don't have to have grown up in church to know this story. This is one of those stories that we've taken from the Bible and brought into our own kind of cultural folklore. We use this story to illustrate the fall of the mighty, the, the, the glory of the underdog. Everyone knows David and Goliath. But sometimes it's these well-known stories that, that actually can lead us astray. The more familiar we get with anything, the more tempted we are to just kind of gloss right over it. We assume that we know all that there is to know about that story, and in so doing, we may actually end up missing the whole point of the story. And in the case of this story, we may actually end up taking a good news story and turning it in to a bad news story. I think that's the case with our story for today, and so we wanted to take a fresh look at it this morning. If you haven't done so already, go ahead and open in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 17. And the story begins with the battle lines being drawn. If you have turned there, follow along with me, beginning in verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephestimim. Now, um, to us, <laughs> that probably just sounds like a whole bunch of gibberish, uh, but to the original hearers and readers of this story, this was an alarming sentence. The, the Philistines had been the chief oppressors of God's people ever since Joshua brought the people into the land. And if you remember, he drove out the, inhabit- the inhabitants of the land, but he stopped just short of the West Coast. He left the Philistines. And from that point forward, the Philistines have been constantly in war with God's people. That was one of the reasons why, just a few chapters earlier in 1 Samuel 8, the people demanded a king because they wanted someone to deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. And Saul was supposed to be that guy. 
He was the one chosen as king to lead God's people and protect them from their enemies. And yet here we are, well into Saul's reign, and the Philistines are still there. In fact, they're not just there, but they've advanced into Israelite territory. It seems like we're losing ground here, Saul. And so in verse 2, Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. You've got to get this scene in your head, right? There are these two huge hillsides and on one hillside are the Philistines, the enemies of God's people. Uh, No offense to you all (laughs) over here. Um, And on the other side were the Israelites, God's chosen and elect holy people and between them this big valley and a huge chasm of fear. Their fear had a name, verse 4, and there came out from the camp the Philistine. Excuse me, there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Now, there's been a lot of debate about exactly how tall Goliath was. We have a number of different manuscripts to draw from. We know he was anywhere from seven to nine feet tall. But what we know with absolute confidence is that Goliath was the tallest guy on the battlefield on both camps. In fact, we have good reason to believe that Goliath actually descended from a whole race of tall men. Do you remember back in the story to Numbers 13 and 14? God's people were wandering in the wilderness and they had just arrived on the cusp of the promised land. And they sent in 12 spies to scout out the land. Do you remember the story? And the spies go in, they look around for a little while, they come back and then they give the report to the rest of the people. Do you remember what they said? We can't go in there. I mean, have you seen the people in there? They're huge. We're like little grasshoppers compared to them. And just like that, the people of Israel refused to enter into the land God had promised to give them simply because of the size of their adversaries. They failed to trust that God was bigger than their enemies. And as a result, they spent the next 40 years wandering around in the wilderness until an entire generation died off. That group of tall people were called the Anakim. And according to the book of Joshua, they ended up settling in three different cities, all Philistine, Gaza, Ashdod, and Gath. Do you remember where Goliath is from? Gath. See, this isn't just another day in the battlefield for the Israelites. This isn't even just another battle with the Philistines, which it seems like they were doing all the time. No, this battle brought the story of Israel full circle once again. But once again, they stand before the tall men. Once again, everything hangs in the balance. Have they learned their lesson? Will they continue to let the size of their adversary determine their level of fear? Or will the size of their God lead them into faith? Well, to answer that question, the story zooms in on three different main characters, three different warriors in the text. And each one represents a different way of engaging 
in this battle. The first warrior that we meet is Goliath, the man we just met in verse four. And Goliath shows us the way of self-confidence. I mean, Goliath's hope, his strength, was, was drawn from himself, and for good reason, right? I mean, just look at the guy. <laughs> He's huge. He's a hulking beast of a man, head and shoulders above everybody else. And that alone gave him a huge advantage. But Goliath didn't just have the physical advantage. He also had the material advantage, specifically his armor, his weaponry. Hebrew narrative is intentionally sparse in detail. It's far more interested in getting you from point A to point B than it is about describing the scenery along the way. And so any point that it slows down to describe details, something incredibly important is going on. And listen to the level of detail used to describe Goliath's armor. Verse 5. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. Literally, the Hebrew calls it a coat of scales. There's some intentional snake-like imagery going on here. Ever since the Garden of Eden, snake imagery has always been used to describe the things that are opposing God and his people. And Goliath is a perfect example of that, isn't he? Verse 6, And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. But rest assured, this guy is armed to the hilt, but both offensively and defensively. But not only did Goliath have the physical and material advantage, he also used these things to create kind of a psychological advantage over the Israelites. But listen to what he does beginning in verse, uh, excuse me, verse 8. He, that's Goliath, stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Literally, it says, I shame the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. See, Goliath took the way of self-confidence. He looked at his strength, his resources, all that he had going for him. That's the first way of engaging in the battle, the the way of self-confidence. The second character that we meet in the story is Saul, the current king of Israel. Now, there's a lot that's similar about Goliath and Saul. Both were the tallest men in their camp. Both had the best weaponry on their respective sides. And both of them had their focus completely fixed on Goliath. And for Goliath, that led him to self-confidence. But for Saul, it led him to fear and self-doubt. Look at verse 11. The, The very next verse, as soon as Goliath has made his first appearance and threatens the Israelites, verse 11, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. In fact, they were so afraid that according to verse 16, they did nothing for 40 days. 
Now, nothing might be a bit of an overstatement here. They actually did the same thing every day. Every day they would wake up and prepare for the battle. Every day they would take their place on the line. Every day, Goliath, the Philistine, would come down into the Valley of Elah and shout his threats. And every day, the Israelites would run away in fear. Look down at verse 24. It says, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, that's Goliath, fled from him and were much afraid. And the sense that we get in the text is that this happened every single day. Now, now that's an indictment against the Israelites. Any one of them could have stepped up and fought Goliath at any point. But more than anyone else, this is an indictment against Saul. When Saul was anointed as king, one of his top priorities was to defeat the Philistines. And now he has his golden opportunity. In fact, he he doesn't even have to beat the whole army. He just has to beat one guy. And granted, it's one huge guy, right? But, But let's not forget, Saul was no shrimp either. He's described as head and shoulders above every other Israelite. If there's anyone who has a shot against Goliath, it's Saul. And yet, we find Saul cowering in the safety of the Israelite camp. There's no way he's going out there to fight this brute. In fact, he's so committed to not fighting his own battles that he makes an offer. I'll tell you what, guys. If anybody goes out there and fights Goliath and beats him, I'll give you tons of money. I'll give you tax-exempt status on your land. I'll even give you my own daughter's hand in marriage. Saul will do anything to avoid stepping into this battle. See, in the midst of the battle, Saul could only see Goliath. And in the shadow of this insurmountable giant, there was simply no way that he saw he could win. Saul was paralyzed by fear and self-doubt. And at this point in the story, we're meant to feel the tension. If it's not Saul, then who will it be? Who will redeem the Israelite story of fear? Who will fight the Philistine and deliver God's people? Enter David, the third warrior of the story, and with him, an entirely different perspective. Now, uh, David was still a young boy at this point, probably anywhere between 12 and 15 years old. Jesse, his father, had sent him to the front lines to bring provisions with him to his three oldest boys who were fighting in the war, and then to bring back a report so Jesse could know how things were going. And as luck, or maybe providence, would have it, David arrived at the battlefield just in time to hear Goliath make his morning threat against the Israelites. And as soon as David hears it, he immediately shows us that something is different about this kid. Look down in verse 26. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God. Now, that's a little bit different than Saul's first reaction to Goliath, right? Saul ran away like a chicken with its head cut off. But David is so appalled that anyone would blaspheme his God in this way. 
By the way, do, do, does anyone remember what the punishment was in the Old Testament for blasphemy? It was death by stoning. Maybe David knew exactly what he was doing when he reached for his sling and his five smooth stones. But the truth of the matter is, David knows that his choice of weapon here is irrelevant. It didn't matter what he fought with. It mattered who he fought with. Look at what David says when he finally does go out to fight the Philistine in verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, Goliath, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, which is what Goliath had said he would do with David's body, and David is just turning it around on him. That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, And that all this assembly may know, that means both the Philistines and the Israelites, that everyone may know this day that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. See, David understood something that no one else in the story did. Yes, Goliath is is huge. Yes, our material resources are insufficient, but we have the advantage here. Because we fight our battles two on one. We never go it alone. And no matter how small or inferior we may be compared with our adversary, God is bigger than any Goliath, and David knows it. But Goliath isn't the only tall man that David faces off against in this story. No, he also faces off against Saul which may actually be the more important battle here. In the chapter right before this, 1 Samuel 16, David is anointed as the future king of Israel, which means at this point there are two anointed ones. And when chapter 16 ends, the question left looming in the text is, who's the real king? Is it Saul or is it David? And this text is giving us the answer. See, all throughout this text, David and Saul are contrasted in a thousand different little ways that we don't have time to unpack this morning. But the clearest comes when David tries to convince Saul to let him fight the battle. Saul is so concerned with the outward appearance, David's size, his lack of military expertise, He even tries to put his own huge armor on this tiny little boy, which some scholars have suggested was less about protecting David as it was about protecting Saul. Maybe if I put my armor on this little kid and send him out there, my people will think I'm actually doing my job. (laughs) But if there's anyone who knows that the outward appearance is a faulty litmus test, it's David. When he was chosen as king, he was chosen not for his outward appearance, but for his heart. And that shapes how David views reality. His confidence rests not in the size of himself or in the size of his adversary, but in the size of his God. 
And David knows that his God is a God who saves. He's seen it play out in his own life as a shepherd. Uh, Look at what he says in verse 37. He says to Saul, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand or the paw of this Philistine. See, Goliath was only focused on himself. And Saul was only focused on Goliath. But David was the only one who saw God in the midst of the battle. Of course, we all know how the story ends, right? David uses his sling and a stone and a certain faith to slay the giant. And by the way, those things are not at odds with each other. For David, his faith didn't mean that he just sat around and waited for God to do it all for him, right? There is no let go and let God here. No, David still had to use his sling skillfully and choose his stones carefully and aim his shot perfectly. But his confidence wasn't in his own ability. No, his confidence rests in the God who fights with and for his people. It's a beautiful story, isn't it? The mighty are defeated. The underdog emerges victorious. God's people are vindicated. It's a story that that inspires and motivates and, and rekindles hope for those facing insurmountable odds. No matter how huge your Goliath may seem today, a hopeless marriage, a rebellious child, an unfulfilled longing, a a bleak diagnosis, a, a systemic injustice, this story stands as a stark reminder that there's hope. There is always hope. But here's where we tend to get ourselves into trouble. Whenever we read a story like this, we're meant to identify with certain characters. And more often than not, we like to identify with the hero, right? We we want to be like David. We we want to have the kind of faith and courage that that no matter how giant the obstacle that stands in our way, or, or no matter how much the underdog we may appear, we can still emerge victorious, And hear me very carefully, I think it's a good thing to want to be more like David, right? It's a good thing to want to have his faith, his courage, his ability to see that God is bigger than our circumstances. Those are all good things to long for in our lives. But that's not the main point of the story. And David is not the character that we're supposed to identify with. We may want to be like David, but the truth is most of us, Most of us are Saul's and Goliath's. For some of us, we live our lives in the way of Goliath, the way of self-confidence. Goliath looked at everything that he had going for him and assumed that he could handle it on his own. He had enough strength, he had enough experience, enough resources, enough ingenuity, and anything else that he might need in this battle to win it on his own. He didn't need anyone or anything else. And some of us, Go through life this way. And we're pretty competent people, right? We bring a lot to the table here. If we just have enough confidence in ourselves, if we just think positively, if we just play to our strengths, then we can handle whatever life throws at us. Or maybe if we do have some kind of deficiency, then if we just get the right training, 
or, or read the right books or go to the right seminar or Bible study, then nothing can stand in our way. But remember, when the story ends, Goliath, the one with all the strength and all the training and all the resources, he's the one who ends up with his head in the dirt. See, all of our assets and abilities will never save us. And Goliath reminds us of that hard truth. And then there are others of us who are a little more like King Saul. But we go through life plagued by fear and self-doubt. Unlike Goliath, Saul knew he didn't have the ability to win the battle. He knew that compared with Goliath, he was weak. He was vulnerable. He was under-resourced. And no amount of training could possibly cover that gap. Saul had lost the battle before it even started. And some of us live our lives in the fearful footsteps of King Saul. This is where I tend to live. Maybe it is for you too. We see what life throws at us and so quickly we lose hope. We're thrown into a tailspin because all we can see is ourselves. See, both Saul and Goliath had all their focus on the externals. They had no room for God in their world. And if we're honest, many of us live our lives the same way. See, the the truth is we're not David. And our hope in this story is not so much that we become more like David so that we can slay the giants in our own life. Because if that's what this story is all about, then all of our courageous faith really only pushes us out of our Saulness and into more Goliathness, right? I can take anything life throws at me. Just look at all of my faith. That's a very Goliath thing to say. No, our hope is not in becoming the hero. Our hope rests in the hero coming to us. We don't need to be a David. We need to have a David. Someone to fight the battle for us. Do you remember the terms of the battle that Goliath set forth? It was representative combat. Two people would meet in the center and they would represent their respective sides. Goliath represented every Philistine. David, little David, represented every Israelite. That They were substitutes. That They stood in their place. That's why Goliath specifically is called a champion. That word means one who stands in between. And both David and Goliath stand in between. They stand in between the enemy in front of them and the people they're trying to protect behind them, they stand in between as a substitute, a representative. And when David finally won the battle, that victory was applied not just to himself, but to every Israelite, even though they had done nothing to attain it themselves. Does any of this sound familiar? See, David is a pointer for us to a greater hero yet to come. In fact, he would be a hero who would actually be a descendant of David. He would be born in the same town that David used to tend his sheep, the city of Bethlehem. And this hero, this this Jesus, stepped into the battle for us. He stood in our place. He waged war against our ultimate enemy, the serpent, and all that he represents. 
Only this time, when the dust settled, it sure looked like Goliath had won. The serpent had dealt our hero a fatal blow. And yet, as Jesus' body lay lifeless in the tomb, the battle still raged on. And three days later, as Jesus' body emerged victorious from the grave, he claimed his ultimate victory. The head of the serpent had been crushed. Sin and evil, death and despair had been defeated once and for all. God had shown us once again that no obstacle, no danger, no external circumstance, not even death itself could ever threaten to undo us again. For we have a champion who has stood in between and has won the battle for us. We have a savior who is stronger than any of our adversaries. We have a hero who's crushed the head of the giant serpent once and for all. See, the the good news in the story is not that we can become like David and slay our own giants. That's really not good news at all. That makes us our own savior, and it's a mantle we were never meant to bear. Now, the good news is not that we can become like David. The good news is that we have a David. No longer do we need to boast in our own strength. No longer do we need to cower in fear, for our champion has already fought for us. The battle is over, and he has won. And all that's left for us is to charge down the hill and live in the reality of the victory that has already been accomplished for us. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, how grateful we are that you didn't leave us to fight our own battles, to depend on our own strength, our own ingenuity, our own resources, but that you have stepped in, that you have stood in our place, that Jesus has fought the battle for us and he has already won. God, we confess how often we focus on the externals. And that might lead us to self-confidence because of all the things we have going for us. Or it might lead us to fear and doubt. We might feel overwhelmed by the battles that we're facing today. And so God, give us confidence. Not in who we are and what we bring to the table, but in who you are and what you have already done for us. For we have a hero who has already won the battle. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.